Well, as you can see from the screen this morning, the title of our sermon is, I Pray for You Constantly. I Pray for You Constantly. And another way of saying that would be, I don't stop, I don't stop praying for you. And as you think about things that you would do constantly or you would do regularly, it made me think about routines and habits. And routines and habits are an unavoidable part of life to some extent. They develop naturally as necessary and repetitive tasks are structured around available blocks of time and then repeated regularly or constantly. So there's a lot of things in life that come up more than once there. Many of them are necessary and oftentimes they become repetitive because they're necessary. And so we structure our lives, the time that we have, around accomplishing those things. And that becomes then a habit or a part of our routine. And because they're repeated regularly or constantly, they become ingrained in our very personalities. They become ingrained in you. And they're difficult to change or give up. And you say, not me, I'm Mr. Flexible. That's what I joke with my wife. No, I'm just go with the flow, just always flexible. And the truth is, maybe we should be more like that. Maybe we even desire to be more like that. But because of our habits and our routines, it's very hard for us to make changes in our lives or to give things up that have become habits. And as you think about that, as you reflect upon that, you can typically identify parts of your routine or certain habits that are healthy and beneficial to your overall well-being. And if you think long enough about it or you reflect on it a little bit and you're a little bit honest, you'd be able to identify things that are a part of your routine or certain habits that you have in life that are unhealthy and that are detrimental to your well-being. And that's true, both the positive side of things and the negative side of things. That's true with every facet of your well-being. That's true in your spiritual life. We'll touch on that in a second. But it's true in your physical life. Perhaps you can think of some detrimental habits as it relates to your physical life. I can give you a couple. Fast food is one of them. There's no arguing it. Uh, Coca-Cola, you can look at me. Yeah, Coca-Cola, detrimental to your well-being. You think about some of the other things in terms of never working out, always sitting around, never getting any exercise, not getting enough sleep, and not fueling your body with things that are useful, not drinking enough water, not taking in the right vitamins. On and on you could go with the physical realm, right? If you're getting older like me, not stretching before you play basketball, these kinds of things. Uh, Trying to ride a unicycle without a helmet, not a good idea tried that last night. Somebody was kind enough to leave a unicycle sitting around out at the camp when I visited. I'm like, unicycle on the ground? Yes, I'll try that. (laughs) Detrimental. Not good. Not good for your health. Then think of some physical habits or parts of your routine that might be good for your physical well-being. Maybe you have some good habits. Maybe you eat a yogurt in the morning. Or maybe you're the kind of person who takes time to get a good night's sleep. Or maybe you're the kind of person who bathes often. You know, the kinds of things that are healthy and useful in life. But that's just the physical realm. When you talk about parts of your routine or habits that might be beneficial or detrimental, you can move to the emotional realm. Okay, in the emotional realm, there's things about our routines or our habits that can be helpful or healthy, and there's things that can be unhealthy. Some of them have to do with the kinds, of, the, the kinds of people that we spend our time with, the, the way we open ourselves up even to people. Sometimes it can be beneficial, sometimes it can be unhealthy. 
If you move on and you think about relationships, it's very, very similar. Um, who, who am I going to surround myself with? Is it going to contribute to my well-being or is it going to be a detriment to my well-being? If you think about even financial habits, financial routines that you might have, there's certain things that if you were thinking about it, you'd be like, that's a really bad habit. Or you'd say, that's something that I learned or developed in my life years back. Let's just let's pick one. Uh, say, for example, I, I had this habit when I was younger. Every time I sp- you know, spent a, used the $5 bill, anytime I got the change, I would always put it into a savings jar. And eventually, each time I spent money, I always took the change even dollars, cents, whatever it was, anytime I broke a larger bill, I always took the change and, and saved it. Most of us would be, if you think about that for a minute, you'd be like, man, I'd have a lot of money in that jar, right? And so that's just a, a silly example. There's more serious examples of good financial choices and bad financial choices. You, I hope you get the drift of where I'm going with this. But of course, our focus here and the focus of the Word of God is on the spiritual realm. And so as we think about healthy habits or healthy routines as it relates to the spiritual realm, there's a number of different things that you could point to. And in our passage today, the Apostle Paul starts off by talking about how I pray for you constantly. And you think about a healthy spiritual habit. The Apostle Paul is saying, I never stop, I never cease thanking God for you and making mention of you in my prayers. I never stop doing that. And you think, would that be something, if it's being promoted in God's word, is that something that would be beneficial to my spiritual well-being? To pray in that kind of a way. Pray without stopping. Uh, To pray constantly for others in my life. Now, there's other aspects of prayer that, obviously, you could do a whole series on different aspects of prayer. But here, when you're just thinking about one healthy spiritual habit, Paul is identifying for us, through his life's example through his own, the illustration of his own life, something that would be beneficial as it related to your spiritual well-being. He says, this is something that I do. And he's telling other people about it with the idea that you would benefit from doing this too. Now, you could think of other things. We're not going to get into them today. But the Bible talks about the value, the benefit to you spiritually of availing yourself of the teaching of the Word of God. And here you are this morning. You made that decision. Some of you, the decision was made for you maybe, but sorry for that. Just, you'll get through it. But most of you made that decision. You said, this is going to benefit me. Now, are there a million other things you could be doing this morning? The answer is yes. So somehow you were convinced that this would be in your best interest spiritually to show up and hear teaching from the Word of God. How about reading the Word of God? Another very very valuable and useful habit you could get into that would contribute to your spiritual well-being. How about fellowshipping with other believers? Spending time with the one another's that God has put in your life. And here we are again this morning. One of the values of gathering together is that we can worship together. We can fellowship together. We can learn together. We can pray together. We can praise God together. And the Bible holds that out as something that is promoted to contribute to your spiritual well-being and mine. See, we're, we're said to be all unique parts of one body. 
And although that finds its expression in many different places in local churches all around our region, all around the country, all around the world, yet a gathering of a body of that larger big picture family of God, of that larger body of Christ, there's the expression at a local level of groups of people that get together to gather to with a common bond that is their common faith in Jesus Christ, or at least that's what it's supposed to be. And so we could go on with other just bigger picture general habits or categories of things that would contribute positively to your spiritual well-being. But our focus here this morning, and Lord willing we'll get through even this, is on the value of praying for others regularly, praying for the well-being of others. So Paul gives us that example. Now, as we think about it, here in our passage in, first, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, Paul describes something that became a habitual practice in his life. And that was thanking God for and praying for other believers. Now this passage represents another example of the Apostle Paul thanking God for his fellow believers. He starts with that saying, I, don't st- I never stop thanking God for you. And then he says, and making mention of you in my prayers. I never stop either of those things. But we had noted earlier on in our study this series we've been doing on the Apostle Paul's prayers, there was another one where he thanked God for other believers. And we observed then that that was one of, and this is a second one of, over 12 times that Paul specifically in the New Testament discusses thanking God for the other believers that God has put in his life. And I think about that, that's a, quite a number of times considering the other subjects that he touches on, that's a pretty common subject to bring up 12, over, over 12 times that he's thankful for other believers in his life. And it's interesting that we see yet another example of that here, but he goes so much further this morning because now he doesn't just talk about praying for them or thanking, sorry, thanking God for them. He talks about, I thank God for you and I make mention of you in my prayers. And then he goes on to say what he prays for them. So let's dive into that this morning, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. If you're not there, the vast majority of you I know are there. And let's break this down. But let's just read it so we have kind of this, the flow of thought without breaking, breaking up the context. But we're going to read 15 through 23 here, Ephesians chapter 1. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised from him from the dead and seated him in, at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So let's try to work our way through this here this morning. Quite a few 
verses, but we'll start here with verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. So the order of thought is somewhat interrupted here as the main thought begins here and is actually completed in the following verse. So we have, therefore, I also, that starts our main thought. Then as an aside, he talks about something that he heard about them or that contributed to or triggered his response of thankfulness and prayer for these believers. And so we have, therefore I also, and then we have this phrase, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. But, so we have a description there of what, again, triggers this response in Paul to, to pray for them and make mention of them without stopping. So this word therefore, it means on account of, and it ties back to what was just said about these saints, past trust in Christ, which Paul restates using the synonym faith while also noting their love for one another. So he has faith here. We have, he used the word believe previously. It says, let's look there. Verse 13, in him you also trusted, another synonym for faith, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, another word for trust, believe, faith, all referring to the same idea of having our confidence in, being convinced or persuaded to put our, all of our eggs in a, in a place of trust or, or confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Well, that's the object here. In, in whom also in Jesus Christ you believed. At that moment, you were sealed, it said, by the Holy Spirit, which is where we get our assurance of salvation. Now, God's promises are the ones that are faithful. And so that's where the security comes from, as God says, the moment you put your faith in me, you, your identity changes, your position changes. You go from being in Adam to now being in Christ. You go from being dead to now being alive. You go from being lost to now being found. You become my child. And as evidence of that, I'm going to put my very spirit inside of you as a down payment of your future inheritance to give you that assurance that once you're mine, you're always mine, I'll never let you go. Now, the security is something that is a doctrinal fact. I become secure because of God's faithfulness, because he says that my faith triggers my now inclusion into his family, and nothing could ever separate me from his love. That's security. Security brought about by God and his faithfulness, his character, his part in it, which is a fixed fact regardless of whether I understand it or appreciate it or appropriate it or not. Assurance refers to my understanding or my appreciation of that fixed fact which was sealed by God's Spirit but was sealed by God's promises. The fact that God can always be trusted and God always keeps His Word. He says this is what happens the moment you put your faith in me. Is you, become, you become a part of this. You become born into this and you become adopted and I'll never let you go. You're sealed in that now. That's a fact. But when you think about the assurance side of it, the assurance side of it comes from being convinced or persuaded that what God says is true and that you can take God at his word. So as you think about him talking now about, I heard of your faith, same idea as he's been talking about all along, that the way that they got in on this is by trusting, believing, accepting, putting their, tr- putting their confidence in, having faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and we're not going to go into that further this moment. But he says, 
these are the things that have caused me or to thank God for you. I'm so thankful to see these things or have heard these things about you. And of course, again, faith and their love for one another. Now, I hope the takeaway you see here is that I heard of your faith, which then is connected to your love for all the saints. I hope you see there that flow of thought. Love for fellow believers is an expression of a spirit-directed life. In this context, he's talking about the work of the Spirit of God who has now sealed these believers. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption, the final redemption of the purchased possession will, which will happen when we're glorified one day in heaven. But it says, in the meantime, the Holy Spirit wants to work inside of you to produce a godly manner of living that is compatible with who God is because it's God producing it. Something that is a byproduct of abiding in Christ, staying connected to the vine, enjoying intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. As we walk, our manner of living is connected with a vision, a focus on looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He says that through his spirit then, he can produce in our lives a manner of living, a way of living, a way of thinking for starters, and then a way of living as a byproduct of that, that can bring him glory. That is compatible with who he is. Why? Because he's the one then producing it. And so as you think about the Christian way of living, then what are some of those characteristics of God that he then wants to produce in us? Well, we know that one of the characteristics of God or one of the things produced by the Spirit of God that is compatible with who God is in our lives is love. And so Jesus regularly talked about the idea is, as I have loved you, so you should love one another. And we'll touch on that in a second. But as you're thinking about that, that love for fellow believers, that's just a natural expression of the Spirit working and directing in your life. And you notice this phrase where it says, I heard of your faith, but I heard of your love. Now look at, don't overlook that last little bit, for all the saints. I heard of your love for all the saints. And it reminds us that this love is supposed to be without exception and without consideration of whether it is merited or not. As you look around, this isn't even all the saints here, of course. This is just all the saints that are here this morning. But as you look around, there's a few people here who irritate you. Don't look, up, look around, not all at me at the same time. As you look around, if you're being honest, you'd say, that person rubbed me the wrong way. That person said something I didn't like. That person even, maybe, maybe they hurt me in some way. They let me down. They angered me. Maybe that's true. In fact, in all likelihood, it is true. Because apart from the Spirit of God in every moment directing in our lives, we say and do all kinds of goofy things, don't we? And not all of them contribute to the unity of the family of faith. Not all of them contribute to the unity amongst friends and within marriages and within homes. Many of those things that are done or said are very detrimental to those relationships. Yet the on a supernatural level, God's kind of supernatural, special kind of love, it tra- it's supposed to transcend those things. As we're trusting the Lord and letting the Spirit of God work in our life, it gives us forgiveness. He gives us true forgiveness where we're really willing to let go of things. He's, he allows us to move on. 
He allows us to see people with a lens of compassion. He allows us to be gracious as we think about even our own weaknesses, our own rough edges, our own past failures. Somebody asked me the other day, they said, this was really great to hear, by the way. Somebody said, Heritage Trail seems like, you know, just a really laid-back, gracious place. I said, hang around for a while. No, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. A really laid-back and gracious place. It made me smile. It melted my heart. And I was thinking about, why do you think that is? And I said this to another, another believer as I had been thinking about it for a day or two. I thought, you know why I think that is? Is because we've been around for a while. And if you've been around for a while, everybody's had time to get egg on their face. Every, everybody's had time to have some big trip-ups in their life. Either their lives, their kids' lives, their relatives' lives. They've stumbled. They've got mud all over themselves. They've been on the ground like a cast sheep with their legs up in the air. Can't even get up. Need somebody to come alongside of them. Help them stand back up. And if you've been around long enough and families have been around long enough, people have been around long enough, They've experienced enough of that so that they can look at other people who are going through similar things with a lens of compassion, with a lens of humility, with an idea of not necessarily celebrating the failure because not everything that happens is good, but not necessarily being critical and judgmental in a, in a legalistic kind of a way or in a really proud or arrogant kind of a way because they don't have to look very far to remember the pit they were dug from yesterday. Not the original pit when you got saved. I'm saying the pit you got out of yesterday. And isn't that, isn't that true that if God is working in us and reminding us of those things and saying, leave that behind? Uh, yeah, I know. I know that hasn't been helpful. I know that's been detrimental to you. I know that's set you back. But now, let's, let's just let go of that. Let's, let's leave that behind and let's, let's move forward. And let's move forward in a way where we can keep pointing ourselves and hopefully pointing one another to the solution to all of those problems. The one who actually can make some lasting change if we could just learn to trust him, if we could just learn to keep our focus on him and, and coming alongside of each other and saying, I know it seems like that's the rock bottom right now, but there's hope. You don't have to be in despair. Put that behind you. Move forward and let God make some changes so that we don't keep operating some kind of a vicious cycle where we're just going through the same thing over and over and over again. But God can actually bring us forward, advance us in our faith, where we can grow in our understanding, where we can leave some of that baggage behind in any event, how did I get to that? Love for all the saints, not just some of the saints. And one of the passages that I thought of as I was you know, looking at this idea, again, I mentioned already, Jesus says this. And John is repeating it because he heard it. And so he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God, meaning that kind of love is born or it originates in God and knows God. See, it's only an intimate fellowship, an intimate walk with God at any present moment in time that's going to produce that kind of love in your life. 
That's the only way it could be true is that you're presently knowing God and it originates in God because you can't produce that kind of supernatural love. That kind of supernatural love requires a supernatural power source. So then he goes on a few verses later in verse 11 to say, Beloved, if God so loved us, and he did, it's assumed there, we also ought to love one another in that way, in God's kind of way, as directed and provided and produced by him in my life and in your life. And so that's one of the things here that Paul is saying, this has made me never stop thanking God for you because I hear of your faith and your love for the saints. Now, we get to the heart of the main thought here is, I also do not cease, so we'll skip that then parenthetical insertion there, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And this is, I would say, the primary or main thought that's communicated in this passage. I give thanks for you and mention you constantly in my prayers is another way of of understanding that. See, the giving thanks for them is a prayer of praise. So you think about, we're looking at a series here on the prayers of Paul. So I give thanks, that's a prayer of thanksgiving. I give thanks for what? I give thanks that I heard of your faith and your love for all the saints. Okay, then I also do not cease to make mention of you in my prayers. And the mentioning them is ultimately a prayer of intercession. Because we're going to see the specifics that Paul then prays for on behalf of them. When you pray to God, direct a communication to God. That's all prayer is, communicating with God. When you direct a form of communication to God, you say, God, I I, I want to ask you for something as it relates to the well-being of someone else. Well, the fancy word for that is in a prayer or intercessory prayer. So we have two aspects of prayer here. We have a prayer of thanksgiving. We have now a prayer of intercession. As he says, I mention you without ceasing, that describes both of these things. So I do not cease means I don't stop and it represents the very definition of habitual behavior. Now it describes both giving thanks for you and making mention of you, but you notice what is true of both of those things? Who is the focus? Well, not myself. Without stopping, without ceasing, I give thanks for you and then I make mention of you in my prayers. See, both are extremely beneficial habits as it relates to your prayers. Is, is that something that you've learned in your prayer life to give thanks for other believers? To make mention of other believers without ceasing, without stopping. Now, obviously, that's a little bit of hyperbole there in the sense that Paul's not suggesting that he is praying 100 percent of the time. That's not the idea. He's saying, I'm, I'm praying often. It characterizes my life that I'm living life with my Savior. And to live life with somebody in an intimate way means that you talk to them in a regular way. Just some of you newly married uh, couples. That will save you a lot of heartache if you just learn to talk to the one you're intimate with and actually work through and discuss some of the things that you're going through. It helps a lot. But in any relationship... Naturally, you're not going to have a closeness or intimacy in a relationship if you never communicate. The best relationships most often are the ones where people spend the most time together and actually are living life with one another in a way where they communicate with one another so that they get to know each other in a way that would otherwise be impossible. How do you know 
another person so well? Well, because you've spent a lot of time with them. You've heard a lot about their life. You've asked a lot of questions about their past and their life, and you know more and more about them. Pretty soon, the most intimate relationships in your life, you can identify who they are based on who you shared the most life with, who you talked to the most, who you spent the most time with. In most instances, those people are the ones who really know you best because the most investment has been made into that relationship. In any event, Paul, he has that relationship with his Savior where he talks to him constantly is the idea. And while he's doing that, he's giving thanks for others and he's making mention of others in those conversations that he continues to have throughout the moments of every day with God, as he walks and talks with him, sees God as a personal God, a real God, who's always present, who's always available, who is always capable of undertaking in whatever circumstance or trial or difficulty that he's facing. That's something that is very encouraging as you see Paul's posture there in his prayers. Now, I I did want, as I was thinking about praying without stopping, giving thanks for others without stopping, making mention of others without stopping, I couldn't help but think, if it's the idea is there that you're going to continue to do something. I mean, the thing about a habit or sort of a pattern of life or a routine is that you continue to do it. And Paul's basically encouraging us to keep on praying for others. But you can't continue to do something that you're not you never started in the first place or you're not doing presently. You see, Paul says, I don't cease to do this, which implies that at some point he learned the value of doing this, started doing it, and now says, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop. I do this without ceasing. And the question is, are you encouraged by that? Or is, is that something that you're encouraged that there'd be value in that? Well, it's not ultimately the Apostle Paul who's saying there's value in that. It's God himself, as he, through his spirit, breathed the words of this book, the Holy Scriptures, he breathed them through Paul for your benefit and mine. So it's God himself who is encouraging us that there'd be value in adopting this manner of living and this way of life where we just never stop talking to God and as part of that, we never stop bringing other people's needs to God in our prayers. I know there's probably some mixture of encouragement and conviction as you think about that. I know it's true in my life. This idea that I do need to do that more. That has to become truer of my life, and we're going to see that one of the ways that's going to to happen is because I have to actually come to know God in a greater and greater way so that I would see Him for who He is, see how I fit into His plan and what I mean to Him, what He's provided for me. That's going to then encourage me as I know Him in in a deeper way. It's going to encourage me to engage with Him in daily moments of life in a way that then would promote or provide opportunity for me to include the needs of others in those ongoing, that ongoing dialogue that I'm having with God. What a way to think of prayer. It's not some specific, I'm going to fold my hands and it's an ongoing dialogue with God, an ongoing conversation that you pick up and set down, pick up and set down, pick up and set down, Go, 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 go with that until it becomes a part of the very fabric of your life. And that's the, that's the pattern and example that we see in prayer from Paul, but that's what God lays out as what he desires for us in his word. Now we have verse 
17 through the first half of 18. They go together, so I just broke them up this way. But it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, we talk about what is he praying. So I make mention of you without stopping or ceasing in my prayers. There's the idea. That's the big picture idea. If you take away nothing else is I don't stop praying for you. That's what we can learn from this prayer of Paul here. But what specifically does he pray? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory is how he's described, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. And then we have a semicolon that breaks up the thought. But as we think about this, here we observe the first aspect of Paul's prayer of intercession. If we're going to summarize it, it says, I would pray this for you without ceasing. When I'm mentioning you in my prayers, this is one of the things that I pray. That God may give you full knowledge of him. That God may give you full knowledge of him. So that that the God you see at the beginning of the sentence may give to you a spirit of what? A spirit of wisdom in the knowledge of him. And that word knowledge there speaks to a full knowledge. We'll touch on that in a second. This, doesn't this remind you of Paul's desire that he expressed in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10? When he's talking about this, <laughs> his deepest desire is that he would know. He would know God. That he would know, in this case, Jesus Christ specifically, but you can't separate an inseparable triune Godhead. So, that I may know him. That's his prayer for himself. That I may know him. Is that your prayer? Is that your desire? I mean, think of all the things that you're, you're wanting to know. Uh, even the things that you might pray about and say, I want to know this particular thing. Well, I, I want to know more about why my plants keep dying in the garden. I want to know more about shepherding my children so that I can bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's a good thing to want to know. I, I want to know more about maybe my job so I can do it better. I want to know more about this person that I'm interested in so that I could foster maybe a deeper relationship with them. I want to know more about how to fix this, that, or the other thing. I mean, we're YouTubing and Googling all kinds of things to know things about things we don't know. That's because we have a desire to know them because there's a practical value to knowing something you don't know so that you can deal with some difficulty or some trial or something that's in front of you that you're struggling with. What's the solution to that struggle? The solution to that struggle often is to learn something, to come to understand something that you didn't know that well. Well, what's the solution to your struggle with you're not growing in your faith? I'm not maturing in my faith. The, the struggle, the, the, the root cause of that very often is because I'm so focused on myself and the world around me and the circumstances around me and the people around me that I'm not focused on Him. And so because I'm not focused on Him, I'm not spending life with Him, I'm not investing time in His Word, I'm not learning about Him, I'm not praying to Him and asking Him for help. I'm not, ultimately though, I'm not getting to know Him. And because I don't know Him, I can't live life with Him and relate to Him and trust Him. I can't depend on Him to undertake and direct in my life the way I need to because I'm not ultimately desiring to know him to begin with. It's not that hard to track these things back, but we act all flabbergasted like, what in the world is holding me back here? 
I can't possibly understand why I'm not growing in my faith. I just, I scratch my head. I just don't get it. I make no time for him. I don't think about him. I don't invest in him. I don't have any care in the world about him, and I just don't seem to be growing. <sighs> I better get on Google and figure this out. <laughs> it's not too complicated, is it? And so that's why this is Paul's prayer for them. This is why this was his prayer for himself, that I may know him. I could understand and personalize even the power of his resurrection. I could, felt, I could understand and I could relate to the fellowship of his suffering and be conformed to his death. I want to be like him because I have to, to be like him, I have to know him and understand him in a, in a greater way than I do presently. And so he naturally Praise this for them. You see this phrase, growing in the knowledge of God. Growing in the knowledge of God. And you got to effectively, it's not a phrase in here, but that's the idea here. I pray that God would give you a growing knowledge of him is the idea. That you would have this understanding and enlightenment that you didn't have previously. But you don't do this yourself. I want to emphasize that. See, growing in the knowledge of God is only made possible as a result of God providing what? God provides the wisdom. God provides the revelation. God provides the enlightened understanding. God is the one who gives this. You don't produce this, but Paul's prayer is that God would give this to them and then they would appropriate it by faith with what objective in mind? that they would grow, that they would know him in a way they had never known God before, that they could mature as Christians, mature. And this word knowledge here, it's epignosis, but it refers to knowledge that is true, accurate, but this is the, the, the thrust of it. It's, it's thorough and it's full. And that's why we say the main thought here is that I have this prayer that I don't stop I, I do it constantly as I think about you, but this is my prayer for you, is that God would give you a full knowledge of him, a full knowledge of himself. Now, the question is, is this something that you ever petition God for on behalf of your faith siblings? As you think about your family of faith sitting here, sitting around you, some of them are your actual family, and if they're saved, they're, now, they're also your faith siblings. They're your children, some of them. But they're also your brothers and sisters in the faith. That's weird a little bit, but true. But do you pray, as you pray for others, and you never stop praying for others, do you pray that they would know God fully? Is this ever something that you think of or pray for yourself? I suspect you don't do it often enough. That's certainly true in my life. We need to pray these things, friends. That's what Paul is showing us here through his sample of prayer and talking about his own prayer life. Again, Paul's talking. It's really God talking through Paul. He's wanting to remind us of these things and challenge us about these things so that we could grow in our understanding and we would start praying for these things. I want to know you. Or help me to have a desire to know you. And then allow me, give me wisdom, give me knowledge, give me understanding so that I can see you more fully. Now we move on to verse 
the back half of verse 18, Paul continues with some of the specifics here of his prayer. And he's going to list three specific things that he associates with knowing God fully. He says you have to understand these three specific things anyway as a part of understanding God in a more, in a deeper way. So we read verse 18, the last half of it here. That you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So it starts with that you would know him, that God may give you full knowledge of him. And now we have this, that you would know what is the hope of his calling. So there's really two things here. He says that you would know what is the hope of his calling. Second thing is that you would know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So there's two of the three specific things that Paul associates with understanding or knowing God more fully right here. But the first one is that you would know what is the hope of his calling. And calling refers to an invitation to participate or take part in something. So what is the hope of God's invitation that you would come and drink freely of the water that he offers, become a part of his family, put your faith in his finished work on your behalf? So he makes that invitation to you. The question is, do you accept that invitation? God says, I don't want any to perish. I want all to be saved. I want all to come to a place in their lives where they're willing to make a change of thinking, have a change of attitude, a change of focus and a change of dependence where they no longer are trusting in something else or someone else. They're not trusting in their church. They're not trusting in their, their family's heritage of going to church. They're not, they're not trusting in their human works, their religious efforts, their res- religious rituals. They're trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so when a person comes to that place in time, the invitation is being made. Will you leave all the rest behind? Stop depending and trusting on anything else or anyone else and put all of your faith in my finished work on your behalf. That's the invitation. The invitation is made to every person. It's made to you. Again, if you're not saved, the invitation, Jesus is calling. He's calling for you to come home. The only way to the Father is through the work of the Son, through faith in the finished death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He said, I am the door by me. If anyone enters in, he will be saved. So will you accept? Will you walk through that door? Will you, will you take by faith the gift of eternal life that Jesus offers you? That's the invitation. Now, the effect of that invitation or that calling is that we should have hope. If you've accepted that invitation, you should now be filled with hope. See, salvation comes through accepting Christ's invitation to participate in the offer of salvation made to all mankind, but the hope then comes from now having this confident expectation regarding the fulfillment of God's promises that he's made to his children. So when the Bible uses the word hope, it refers to this confident expectation. I expect God to keep his promises. Promises as it relates to what? Promises as it relates to his provision for and his blessing upon his children. He says, I've made all kinds of promises to you and I'm a faithful promise-keeping God. Now, does that give you hope for today? Yes, because he says, promises for today, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He says, I care for you. He says, nothing will separate you from my love. He says, I'll provide all that you need. 
He says that with Christ, there's nothing that's impossible. He says, I'll fight your battles. He says, I'll direct your paths. He says that while you're walking by means of the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. He makes promise after promise after promise. He says, if you, if you get distracted and you go your own way, when you recognize that, acknowledge that, confess that, say the same thing as me, I'll restore that intimate fellowship with you. The moment that you acknowledge or see that you, you're not living life or you're not going in the direction that God has for you. When you recognize that, come to terms with that, bring that to Him, He says, I'll restore that intimacy because I've always been right there. I never went anywhere. I've just been waiting for you to change your mind and stop being stubborn. Stop doing your own thing. Stop messing up your own life. I have a perfect abundant life plan for you. How about that life instead? Aren't you sick of the train wreck of a life that you're producing? You're making all kinds of decisions. How's that going? How about something better? Some of you are like, well, I don't know. I, I'm making pretty good decisions. My, my life is pretty joyful. Is it though? Is it though compared to what standard? Compared to the sadness and loneliness and unhappiness that you see in your neighbors? I mean, if we find the right standard, we can always make our lives seem pretty good. We can always justify the choices we're making and say, no, I'm doing a pretty good job with my own life. But compared to the life God says is possible, which it says surpasses all understanding, the kind of life that God has for us, the abundant life, we can't even fathom. So compared to that and the perfection that is that, Whatever you're doing falls way short. I promise that. And so that's a part of what we see here even as we're looking at Paul's prayer about hope. That you would know the hope that's associated with having accepted the invitation that God made. You see, the idea here is that Paul wants these believers to appreciate or comprehend the absolute certainty of the blessings and the victory that they now enjoy as a byproduct of their positional standing and identification in Christ. In the context, the whole passage leading up to this, starting in verse 3, going all the way through verse 14, was about what it meant to be in Christ and all of the blessings that were associated with that. Now he says, I want you to see the hope that comes from recognizing that you're a part of that, that you're getting to be in on that. And again, is this something that you pray for, for yourself? that you would know what is the hope of your calling, that your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ would know what is the hope of their calling in Christ. Now the next one in this sentence is, or this verse, half, this half of the verses, you have to insert this, but that you would know what? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now this is the second truth Paul prays these believers would appreciate. Now remember there's three of them, but here's the second one. And as with verse 11 there are two ways to interpret this phrase. Now, both are true. Both are necessary. Both are things that you should understand. Which one is he referring to here exactly? Just like verse 11, it could be, it could refer to all the wealth of God which believers inherit and can access now and for all eternity as his beloved children. That is true. That's a true principle. But when we looked at verse 11, looking back, if you look back there, in him we have obtained an inheritance. We observe that there's a little bit of disagreement on that phrase. 
Some say that it refers to the inheritance that we received as a part of becoming associated with Christ through faith in the finished work of in his finished work on our behalf. And another take on it based on some more complicated analysis of the Greek languages, in him we have become an inheritance. That it, we didn't receive, it's not that we received an inheritance, but that the focus of this verse is actually that we became we, God's inheritance, his heritage, his purchased possession. And that's true also. So they're both true. There's no reason to make a mountain out of a molehill. Both things are true. But it affects then how you, you take this. Because if you take the original idea from verse 11 to be that we became his inheritance, then you'll take this a little bit differently. If you take the original verse 11 to mean that we received this glorious inheritance, the moment of faith in Christ, which was also true, then you'll take it this first way. That you are wealthy as God's child. You have inherited a royal position. You have a royal standing now in God's family. And he's the king. So now you have all of these blessings and all of this inheritance and all this wealth that you can access at any point in time for the rest of this life and enjoy that for all of eternity. Now, if verse 11 is taken to mean that all saints became God's inheritance, then Paul's prayer here would be that saints understand just how precious or valuable they are in God's eyes as his glorified or radiant heritage and purchased possession. The idea then would be you are dearer to him than all the splendors of creation when you're thinking about that the riches of the glory of his inheritance is found in the saints. His inheritance is displayed in the, in the saints. They are his inheritance and he values them more than any other aspect of creation. They're, they're more precious to him than that. They're richer, they're richer to him than that. And so... Either way, you need to understand, appreciate, and live in light of both of those things. You have a rich inheritance. You are his inheritance. You are valued by him. You are dearer to him than you could ever imagine. You have to understand both of those things. You have to know both of those things. You have to live in light of both of those things. And I hope you do. That was Paul's prayer, though, that you would know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. It doesn't matter that much to me which it is because I think they're, so, they're both such fascinating and wonderful truths. Because I kind of lean a little bit more towards we, beca- we became his inheritance in verse 11, I'd probably lean a little bit more that way here too. But the question is, is this something that you pray for? Is this something that you pray for yourself that you would understand just how dear you are to him? Or if you take the other approach, is it, do you pray for yourself and others that you would understand just how rich your inheritance is now that you're in Christ? that you're adopted into his royal family? Do you pray for that? Do you know that? Do you know how rich you are? Do you know how dear you are to him? Are you appropriating that? It's a fancy word for are you using that, applying that, understanding to the way you go about life, the way that you see yourself in the mirror, the way that you see other believers? Do you see them as people that are dearly beloved, that are accepted in the beloved? If Christ can accept them, why can't you accept them? If Christ can accept you and love you and and, and say that you have infinite value, why can't you accept that? Why can't that be how you find, form your identity instead of in what, how other people have slandered you or abused you or criticized you or attacked you or undermined you? 
or devalued you? Why, why is that shaping the way you see yourself instead of the way he sees you being the thing that's shaping yourself? This isn't a small matter to be praying for this type of thing. We need to know this and understand this and appropriate this in our lives so that we could live life the way that, way that God intended us to. We could see Him for who He is. We could see ourselves for who we are on one, on one sense in a humble way. On the other sense, in the exalted standing we now have in Christ. The victory that we now have in Christ. The hope that we have in Christ. The provision that we have for our every need in Christ. The strength and the power that we have in Christ working in our lives, which will be the third thing here that we'll see next. I got so excited. Let's turn to that, though. The next part we see in verse 19, the first part. This is the third thing, the third specific. I pray that you would understand this, that you would see this. What? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us, toward us who believe? Here we see the third and final aspect or area or un- of understanding that Paul is praying for on behalf of these believers. The idea is that you may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power. Now, that's just a general understanding. Then there's the specific application of that understanding as it relates toward us, towards us who believe. There's the appropriation part of it. See, the strength of the Christian's hope or confident expectation is directly proportional to his awareness or appreciation of the strength of his God. Let me say that again. The strength of the Christian's hope is directly proportional to his awareness or appreciation of the strength of his God. Your hope is not going to be very strong if you don't have an appreciation for how strong your God is. As you see how big your God is, the greater your hope is going to be. Doesn't that make sense? All of a sudden, the things that were so overwhelming to you when you were a new believer, immediately you thought, this is a hopeless situation. That was your default. Now all of a sudden, you've grown a little bit. You've seen how big your God is a little bit. You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You've seen his faithfulness in your life. You're now going along singing songs like, in all my life you have been faithful. You're singing those kinds of phrases. Now all of a sudden, the next wham, bang, humdinger that comes along in life, it doesn't knock you spinning quite as much because you say, he got me through that. And he'll be able to get me through this. And you see his power. You understand his power. You appreciate the extent of us unlimited God has limitless power. And pretty soon, even the biggest valleys, even the darkest places are illuminated by your understanding of how big your God is. You see some light even in a place where anyone else would be in complete despair. And you say effectively, big problem, bigger God. Big problem, always bigger God. And that's what Paul is praying for in this specific aspect of things where he's, he's saying, I want you to understand. I want you to know the exceeding greatness of his power. What a fun word, exceeding greatness. Well, two words, but the idea there, it's, it's, it's surpassing power is what it actually means. 
It's this surpassing power. Now, only a God with limitless power can be relied upon with certainty and complete confidence to keep all of his promises. That's why it's so important to Paul that these believers would understand or know this. You see, unless these believers can come to a place where they can see that God is limitless in his power, then they can have that complete confidence or that hope that he prayed for to begin with, that they would know the hope that's associated with their newfound position in Christ, that they would know the riches of that inheritance, either being his inheritance or the inheritance that comes with that, that now they would know the exceeding greatness of his power. It all is tied together. Now you see, toward us who believe, it refers to God's utilization of that great power to minister to believers. In this context, he's saying that the exceeding greatness of his power is directed toward us who believe. Now, is God's limitless power directed other places too? Yeah, but that's not Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer is that you as believers would understand that God's exceedingly great power, limitless power, is being directed toward you. It's on tap. It's available. The resource is there for whatever it is that you're going through. You see, you lack nothing. You lack nothing. God has it covered. Is there anything too big for God? That's the natural flow of thought that he's hoping to bring these believers to. Now, again, I ask, is this something you pray for? Personally, that you would understand the limitless power of your God. Do you pray for others that they would understand the limitless power of their God? Now he's going to describe or illustrate one application of God's mighty power. He's saying God has limitless power. Here's one illustration or way that he showed it just to remind you of how powerful it is. And he he uses the example of the resurrection of Christ. So we're going to go through this quickly. We're just basically going to not make a lot of observations about it. But according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, so now he's describing this mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, that's one thing, he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, that's a second thing. Now there's going to be four things total. See these last three and a half verses, they just illustrate one application of God's mighty power. Paul references God's exaltation of Christ following his death on the cross as an illustration of God's power. And there's four specific actions that are highlighted. The first two we just saw. He raised him from the dead. That was one demonstration of God's mighty power. Then he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Now if we move on to verse 21, where was that? His right hand, where is that? Well, it's far above all principality and power and might and dominion. So that's where the right hand is, but that's also the exalted position. That exalted position is, bec- is above, superior to every other angelic being or that type of thing. Uh, spiritual, spiritual entity or spiritual force. Christ is above all of them, whether it's angels, demons, Satan himself, He's above all of that. All of the rulers, that's on a human plane, that's on a supernatural plane. He put Christ above all of that. And the result of that is he put, he put him above every name that is named. So both spiritual forces and natural forces or human forces, he's put Christ above all that. He put him above every name. This is another way to say it. Every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So Christ is higher. Christ is more preeminent. Christ is bigger than, or put in a place of exaltation above all of that. 
It's, it's a very interesting passage in the sense of just talking about the superiority of Jesus Christ, which Hebrews, frankly, is a wonderful book about how Christ is better, Christ is, is higher, Christ is greater than anything else. And this just speaks that about through the resurrection, he exalted Christ. He put a focus on him that exceeds the importance that anything else could possibly, anything or anyone else could possibly have. So it just further describes Christ's elevated and exalted position here in verse 21. Note that it's not just a little above, but he says he put him far above. Far above, not just a little. See, Christ alone is the preeminent one. And though man naturally seeks the preeminence, as an example or illustration of the kind of power that, that God applies or utilizes to minister to believers, Paul wants to remind them that he used this power, he displayed this power in his exaltation and his elevation of Christ because, in a, in a sense, why is that something we need to be re- reminded of? Because we naturally put ourselves in those exalted or elevated positions and God made it very clear that the only one who deserves to be in that place of honor and glory is Jesus Christ. And then we see the last two of descriptions of how God used his power to elevate or exalt Jesus Christ. Third thing is he put all things under his, ve- under his feet, verse 22. And he gave him, there's the last thing, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So those are the last two things. He put him to be head over the ch- all things to the church. He put all things under his feet. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow one day. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is God became man. And as you think about the fullness of, he gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. This, the fullness of him who fills all in all could be understood as which is being filled by the one who fills all things with all things. Now think about that. He, he describes the church. He's the head over the church. And then he describes the church being his body. Then he describes it further as saying, which, his body, which is being filled by the one who fills all things with all things. So the church is being filled by the one who fills all things with all things is how that is understood or could be understood. I guess you could argue about that, but that seems to be the primary meaning of that. And as you think about that, doesn't that give you encouragement, even just thinking about the church. This is, again, the local expression of the church. But who's filling it? Who's undertaking for it? Whose church is it? It's his. We don't have to concern ourselves with, is, is God going to be able to undertake for the needs of our church? What we need to be concerned of, can we get out of his way enough that we can let him direct and undertake in this church. Let him fill all things with all things. See, we lack nothing. We're not missing anything. We just need to learn to trust him more. So I pray for you constantly. I don't stop thanking God for you and making mention of you when I pray. Now, is that true? Well, it should be as a natural expression of God's kind of loving concern for others. If I have a loving concern for you, then I should want to pray for these things as it relates to you, that you would know him, that you would understand the hope of, of your calling, that you would understand the greatness as, as it relates to the inheritance that we have, as being his inheritance or the inheritance we have, that we would know and understand the greatness of his power that's being directed toward us who believe. 
that we'd understand those things. If I loved you and I have a concern for you, shouldn't we pray that for each other? Well, that's what Paul's trying to teach us here. See, it should be a natural expression of that. Now, if it is true that you're praying for other people, are we praying for these spiritual related things? Are we praying for the spiritual well-being of others? Now, it doesn't mean it's wrong to pray for the other things. We should pray for them too. But are we, are we praying for spiritual growth, spiritual well-being? Are we praying that other believers would know God fully? We should be. Are we praying that they would appreciate the nature of their hope, the riches associated with being God's inheritance or receiving God's inheritance? Are we praying that they would appreciate the limitless power God directs towards meeting their every need? We should. Because that's what's going to give them encouragement and confidence. And these questions are worth asking and considering as many prayers tend to overemphasize earthly and physical matters without emphasizing eternal and spiritual matters enough. Now again, I'm not saying we shouldn't be praying for earthly and physical matters. We should. But we shouldn't be praying for them more than we're praying for the spiritual matters, the spiritual well-being of the one and others that God has put in our lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could spend in your word. Thank you for this passage that we could look at here this morning. Thank you that you remind us that you desire to be known and that we should even be praying for one another that we could know you in a deeper and complete and full way. That that would include a knowledge of the hope that we have, the inheritance that we have, and the power that we have working on our behalf. Pray that those things would have encouraged our souls here this morning and encourage us to incorporate those things even into our prayers for others as we move forward in Jesus' name. Amen.